sorry we're slightly late. I just had to check something with our lawyers, but I can exclusively reveal that Aaron Bastani is co-hosting tonight's Navarro Live. Aaron, how are you doing? Very good, Michael. You had even me on tenterhooks. That's how good your, uh, your dramatic pauses are. Maybe there's a career for you in theatre once you've mastered the YouTube game here at Navarro Media. We are, of course, going to be talking about the story involving this BBC star. I have to say, just as we were about to go live at 6 p.m., not why we went slightly late, but a, law, a letter has just been um, put out by the lawyer of the relevant young person, which actually really puts a different spin on lots of this story. We'll be taking you through all of it, including that update. Um, also on tonight's show, um, we've got lots of news on the Labour Party from over the weekend. Um, it's not particularly encouraging. Um, also, Navarro Media's Rivka Brown takes a trip to a conference of landlords. We've got some great clips from that. Really, really. She, she is excellent at vox popping. Um, also, um, a debate about civility in politics involving confetti at weddings. First story. The BBC is in crisis after it's been alleged an unnamed TV presenter paid a young person £35,000 over a number of years for lewd photographs. Um, the mother of the young person, now 20, has said the cash was used to fund a crack addiction. The BBC host first made contact with the person when they were 17. The story was first exposed by the son who are in contact with the mother. Now, everything we know about this so far, up to this sort of 6pm development, which we'll talk about in a moment, is coming from the mother. So, and it's all coming via the sun. So we're going to show you a series of sun stories, a series of sun front pages. Um, so this was the first moment when the story was broken. This is the front page of the sun on Saturday. Top BBC star in sex picks probe. I mean, at that point, the presenter was taken off air. Now in that story, they quoted the mum as saying this, when I see him on telly, I feel sick. I blame this BBC man for destroying my child's life taking my child's innocence and handing over the money for crack cocaine could kill my child. The son says the mother went to them um, with the story after going to the BBC in May and being unhappy with the response from the BBC. So the son writes that the family did not want any payment for the story, so trying to dismiss ideas that this is, is, is for financial reasons. Um, and the mother said she had been shown bank statements by her child showing payments from the unnamed BBC star. This is another quote from the mother. There were huge sums, hundreds or thousands of pounds at a time. One time he had sent £5,000 in one lump. The money had been in exchange for sexually explicit photographs of my child. This is what the sun broke on Sunday. BBC star sent pants pick to teens. Mum's shock at X-rated mobile image. On Sunday they had this quote from the mother on seeing the pictures on her child's phone. So she said, I loved watching him on TV. That's the BBC star, of course. So I was shocked to see a picture of him sitting on a sofa in his house in his underwear. I immediately recognized him. He was leaning forward, getting ready for my child to perform for him. My child told me I have shown things. And this was a picture from some kind of video call. On her interactions with the BBC, the mother said this, it's obvious to me the BBC hadn't spoken to this man between our complaint on May the 19th. And in June, as they thought he was too important we never wanted an investigation. We just wanted the BBC to tell him to stop. Initially, the security boss gave us a number that didn't exist. The mother told the son she was upset the star was still on TV more than a month after her complaint, and she claims they never called her for a proper interview. And today, um, this was their new allegation. So the allegation from the son suspended BBC man's panic call to 
youngster. So the Sun are reporting here that the unnamed star had made a couple of calls to the young person in question after they had become aware of the Sun's investigation. The presenter allegedly rang and asked, quote, what have you done? And the BBC are under pressure, of course, principally because of the length of time between them receiving the, the initial allegation about the host and them taking any significant action against the host or about the allegation, investigating this properly. And there are also differing accounts of what happened since the complaint was lodged in May. Um, so as you've seen in those quotes, the mother has claimed the BBC made no effort to interview her following her complaint. However, the BBC have suggested they were unable to take forward an investigation as the mother was not responding to the corporation. Former ITN executive Stuart Purvis spoke to Sky about the key unknowns. We don't really know what the BBC knew when. So we can't assume that on the May the 19th, when they had this first communication from the mother of the young person, that they had all this detail that we now have, for instance, about the bank accounts. Because bank accounts seem to me to be the, the heart of it, of getting to the truth. Because if it's true that this presenter was paying money into the accounts of this young person, of staggering sums, we should say, then it wouldn't be too difficult, with the mother's permission, to see these bank account statements and see where the money came from. So why is it that it's as late as... Thursday or Friday of last week, the BBC is suddenly engaging on that kind of detail with documents. Then there needs to be an explanation at some point of that delay uh, of over a month. Now, having got to where they are now, that then they issue a statement, which frankly, I think was a mistake. It should have said, an allegation has been made against one of our presenters. We have suspended the presenter while we investigate. Instead, they came out with this statement. We're sort of almost blaming the mother for not communicating with them properly. And only yesterday did they finally get a sort of grip of it by having a proper statement from Tim Davy, the, the, you know, the director general, in which they said the presenter had been uh, uh, confirmed that he had been suspended, which they'd never done before, mm. and that they were now talking to the police. As to why the host can't yet be named, one risk media companies face is libeling someone over false allegations which can't be backed up. Another risk involved, though, is the right to privacy, which has developed over the past decade through legal precedent, as former BBC legal correspondent Joshua Rosenberg explained on Sky News. The courts have developed a right to privacy over the years, and it's been endorsed by two high-profile cases. The first was when the BBC sent a helicopter over the home of Cliff Richard, uh, when there were allegations against him, which were completely unsubstantiated, led to absolutely nothing. The second was when the media company Bloomberg decided to challenge uh, a, a, an attempt to stop it naming an individual who was suspected of some crime, and the courts laid down that when a case is before the courts, or even being investigated by the police, rather, um, that's when you can't name the person uh, because that person has an expectation of privacy. That ends if the police name somebody or if that person is charged. So in these circumstances, this BBC presenter uh, is fully entitled to, uh, um, uh, to have his uh, uh, name kept out of the media. On the other hand, if the BBC chooses to name him at any point, or indeed the police were too, although that seems to be a long way off, uh, well then, of course, we could report it. That right to privacy may sound reasonable enough. However, one consequence of not naming um, the presenter in question is that many unconnected hosts have found themselves subject to a lot of unpleasant speculation. And presenters such as Gary Lineker, Jeremy Vine and Ryland Clark all found themselves trending on Twitter in connection to the story, leading them to tweet that they were not, in fact, the person subject to these complaints. And someone else in the same boat was Radio 5's Nicky Campbell. This morning, he discussed the issue at the start of his show. It was a distressing weekend, I can't deny it, for me and others uh, falsely named. Today, 
I'm having further conversations with the police in terms of malicious communication and with lawyers in terms of defamation. defamation. Be careful what you tweet. Um, I suppose because, you know, it's, it's unpleasant to be subject to false accusations, but also even if you get it right, you could still be, you know, subject to some pretty hefty legal fees. Um, the Met Police have now met with the BBC over the allegations. Um, detectives from the Specialist Crime Command have said that there is no investigation at this time and that they're reviewing the evidence. The government also isn't taking a leading role as yet. They did make this comment um, this morning, though. This was Justice Secretary Alex Chalk on BBC Breakfast. When allegations of these nature, uh, nature are made, it is very important both for the victim, but also for those other individual people who could be implicated in a way that you've indicated, that pr investigations proceed promptly. And that is, that is absolutely essential. And I'm pleased to hear that such serious and concerning allegations are being discussed with the police today. That's fine. But I think in the fullness of time, there will need to be a careful review about the chronology of this. What happened when? And I'm not going to cast aspersions because I don't have all that information. But time is of the essence because it's not fair on victims. It's not fair on people who could be implicated. And it's not fair on the BBC, which does an important job. You know, I'm not here to, as it were, bash the BBC, but I do think they need to get their house in order and they need to proceed promptly. Otherwise, you will have plenty of collateral victims uh, of what is a deeply a serious and concerning allegation. So that was Alex Chalk this morning, the Justice Secretary. I mean, it has been a day full of speculation, but not much concrete information until 6pm. Um, um, we're going to read directly from the BBC breaking news alert. Claims made by the mother at the heart of the BBC presenter scandal are, quote, rubbish, a lawyer representing the young person has said. In a letter to the BBC, the lawyer makes claims that throw doubt on the story that has dominated front pages through the weekend. It says the young person sent a denial to the son on Friday evening, saying there was, quote, no truth to it. However, the, quote, inappropriate article was still published, the lawyer said. A spokesperson for the son said, quote, we have reported a story about two very concerned parents who made a complaint to the BBC about the behaviour of a presenter and the welfare of their child. Their complaint was not acted upon by the BBC. We have seen evidence that supports their concerns. It's now for the BBC to properly investigate. BBC News does not know the identity of the young person and has not spoken directly to them. It has not seen any of the son's body of evidence or the dossier the son reported was handed to the corporation by the family over the weekend. In their letter, the lawyer writes, quote, For the avoidance of doubt, nothing inappropriate or unlawful has taken place between our client and the BBC personality, and the allegations reported in the Sun newspaper are rubbish. Aaron, I suppose your comment on this, does this new BBC story, which was published at 6pm, I mean, fundamentally change everything? Quite possibly. Because it, it seems like the, the mother isn't merely the interlocutor between the reported victim and the son, but it may be the person driving the story altogether. And that's significant. Because if the young adult at the centre of this, who was an adult when this happened, I understand that there's some ambiguity around, for instance, what constitutes an adult in this country. But after 16, you're generally viewed as, a, as an adult on a bunch of measures. Um, if somebody engages in consensual activity with somebody else, and it's legal, and they have no problem with it, and they submit no complaint in regard to it, then fundamentally there's, there's, there's not a story there on the scale that the sun would like there to be. Let's see. Of course, this is a very, uh, very fluid story. But it looks to me like what may have happened is the sun loaded both barrels. They were ready to go with what they considered a massive story. I'm sure they had it legal. They went to the BBC. They went to 101 people. They thought, 
here's our timeline. We'll do this Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then from this sort of, uh, from what seems to be the case here, the, the young person at the center of it said, I don't want to be a part of this and I don't want you to publish this. And yet they have. Um, and if they have done that, if that is the case, then you're looking at a real, um, a real shortfall when it comes to journalistic ethics. Of course, that's not the first time it's happened with the Sun newspaper, but it still needs to be called out. Some will say, you know, this was a credible source. This is the person's mother, and we were printing what she was saying. I suppose just in, in reference to the law, because I only learned this by reading about this story, Aaron. So the age of consent for sex is 16, but for pictures, the relevant age is 18. So if a well, anyway, you, know, you don't have to be a BBC presenter. If anyone has purchased a picture of someone who is 17 and it's of a sexual nature, that itself is a criminal offence. So the, the relevant age is 16 and 18. And in this case, it would be 18. So if it were the case um, that this BBC host had bought pictures of a 17-year-old, which were of a sexual nature, that would be potentially criminal. Although, of course, um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't quite know how it works. If you can say you had no idea their age and you had every reason to believe they were over 18. People have been speculating, I saw Guido Fawkes sort of speculating on Twitter that if the, the introduction had happened, say, via the website OnlyFans, where people selling pictures of a sexual nature is a kind of everyday occurrence, um, shouldn't really be the source of a scandal. Um, OnlyFans has a policy, which is that you have to be over 18. So if you had gone on OnlyFans and bought a picture, I suppose you can claim plausible deniability or say that you had every reason to believe that they would be over 18 and so therefore you were doing nothing wrong. I think also the fact the police at this point say they don't have evidence of, of any crime suggests that that probably wasn't happening. I mean, it, at the same time, Aaron, it doesn't seem like an, let's say, a, com a completely everyday relationship if there was so it no the thing no one seems to be disputing is that thirty five thousand pounds or a, a sum of a similar amount i mean obviously this is all still alleged right but it doesn't seem that i haven't read anyone sort of say this is all wrong because there wasn't this amount of money transferred it just seems like the position and the opinion of what had gone on from the young person via his lawyer is very different to the perspective of what had gone on via their mother to the sun, right? So do you see what I mean? So it's, it, it's still, if, if you're paying 35 grand to someone for sexual images, something well, how, a bit how odd is happening. To, Michael, you explain to me how this happens because of course, if, if there's a, a senior BBC figure, this is being alleged and then they refute this. They say, oh no, the sum isn't 35,000 pounds. The sun, I mean, that's something of a self-admission of, of guilt. So I, I, I don't quite understand necessarily where we're at. I mean, again, I have no idea. This, this might be an appalling story. It might be awful. You know, it might be far worse than we presently sort of know. Uh, but the, the thing you said is, well, maybe, Michael, you can correct me here, but as I understand it, this young person is now 20. This has been an ongoing process. And the claim is that this happened for the very first time when they were 17. Yes, of course, that would be a criminal act. And then it goes down to, um, was there an extent of negligence or plausible deniability? But it's gone all the way to the present, and this, this person is now 20 years old. And I, I'm unsure if it's ongoing. Can you clarify that for me? or Because that's, that's something I've not been quite clear about. No one, to my knowledge, has reported about whether or not it's ongoing. So, I, I mean, the, the way The Sun have reported it is that it's been going on for the last three years. Now, whether or not the, the interactions were broken off a few days ago or a month ago or six months ago, I, I don't think has been made clear by The Sun. And I mean, I think as this lawyer's statement from the young person involved suggests, um, it 
you know, it, I mean, it might, the, the credibility of everything that's been written in the Sun has obviously been put into doubt by that statement from the person's lawyer. Um, at the same time, I mean, the Sun was reporting that the star had called the young person. So, it, you know, it, it could be that they've changed their story for reasons which aren't wholly unconcerning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a lot more complicated than the, than the sun has been making out for the past three days, which I suppose shouldn't really surprise us, right? Oh, the sun has perhaps done some irresponsible journalism. Um, that that wouldn't normally um, be particularly surprising to, to any of us. Um, Aaron, where do you think this is going to go next? I mean, not to predict, you know, the, I suppose the the content of the story, but is this going to just dramatically change the tenor of this whole conversation, do you think, that lawyer's statement? I think it could do. I mean, there's an interesting dynamic with this story now, Michael, and I think we have to be realistic. The reason why it's grabbed the public's attention, the reason why The Sun have gone with this so hard is because it comes in the immediate aftermath of slipstream, really, of Philip Schofield. And there is a clear effort, I think, by certain elements of the media on the right to, to broadly discredit the BBC. There is a political agenda being pushed here. So I I really feel like this is the sort of fog of war. And as you've said, Michael, it's very important, this sort of state that the, the, the BBC figure at the heart of this, they may be applying pressure in a completely unacceptable way onto this young person too. Uh, that, that to me is the, it's not the most important part, but it's certainly the most interesting part, is that this almost feverish search for another Schofield. There must be more. Because of course, this is the era of, you know, um, Me Too and uncovering and exposing uh, sexual scandals or scandals of potentially sexual nature. Uh, and that's where it feels like this is coming from. And it, it feels to me like The Sun, unsurprisingly, have done all of this before they've maybe got their facts entirely straight. But we'll see. We don't know anything more than you, fundamentally, you people watching. So this is all just completely speculation. But if there were a £35,000 transferred and compromising pictures and a drug addiction involved, the idea of there being some element of blackmail is also not completely out of the question to my mind. So there are many developments that could come out. As I say, I should be absolutely clear. We know absolutely nothing. This is pure speculation on what The Sun have printed and what the BBC have now reported in terms of a letter from the person's lawyer. Um, Aaron, any final thoughts on this before we move on to things that we might have some more concrete details about? I never thought I'd hear those words escape your lips, Michael. I have no idea what I'm talking about. But there's a first time for everything. You know, you were on top of COVID. You were on top of uh, Russia, Ukraine. Always informative, always lucid, always replete with new information. Uh, this time, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Sad, but it had to happen sooner or later. Let's go straight to our next story. Landlords get a hard time on this channel, but maybe, just maybe, we're too hard on them. That's why Navara Media sent Rivka Brown to the National Landlord Investment Show to get their side of the story. Um, here's what a couple of them had to say about rent increases. How are things in the market for you at the moment? Very good. Yeah, the rentals are fantastic. Yeah, because rents are going up and up, yeah, I've heard. Exactly, yeah. How have your tenants reacted to the increase in the rent? Um... Mm, not too good. Mm. Not too good. No. What did, what was their reaction? Um, well, they might not be able to afford the rent. Mm -hmm. So, um, if it does push comes to shove, mm. would you be willing to wave goodbye? 
Um, I think so. Yes, I mean it can be they can be replaced very easily because people there just aren't enough properties to go around at the moment. Mm -hmm. So people are sort of you know they totally going crazy. Oh, I've got to get a property to live in. Mm. So, do you think they might be going crazy because the cost of living is spiraling? Yeah, exactly. So it's very very high. But it actually it's the agent that puts the rent up, not myself. So mm. I think it's done automatically after a year. Have you had to increase your rents at the moment? I know rates are going up, etc. I've not had to, but the management agent I use are basically coming to me and saying, you know, we can get X amount more this year. You didn't personally feel like you needed to, but there was an opportunity to, so you sort of took it. Absolutely, yeah. I'm quite fortunate. I sold my business uh, six years ago, so I've got very little um, in the way of finance, loans. It's all personal money. So um, I'm quite fortunate in that I haven't got mortgages on the property. So um, didn't have to increase the rent, but just following the market trends, really. I mean, you know, it's a cost of living crisis at the moment. Rates are spiralling. Do you think that renters or landlords have a tougher time of it at the moment? I think... Um, renters certainly yeah have you ever considered giving your renters a reduction because of the kind of cost of living crisis I should say yes uh, no now I've stopped work and I've effectively semi-retired from my main job so I do need that income mm -hmm. um, so short answers no so we've, we've obviously been incredibly unfair demonizing landlords I mean it's not they didn't need to raise it they were just following the market who can blame anyone for following the market? Of course, you also heard the excuse there. It's not us. It's the property managers. We're just the landlords. We just receive the money. Uh, there's a middleman who decides how much money we receive. Rivka found one of those property managers who was happy to share her impressions of landlord life. You're a property investor. Tell me a bit about that. We uh, are working closely to with landlords um, to help them get better return of investment for their uh, properties. How much might you be able to increase a landlord's rent, for example? Like what kinds of rent increases are you able to gain through sourcing higher value tenants? From experience, possibly between 10 and 20% higher than what they get now. Wow, okay. And so does that ever involve um, needing to ask tenants to leave who can't pay the kinds of rents that you're, uh, that, that you're asking? That's another beautiful thing, actually, that, that we present to landlords because mm. they deal directly with us. They don't need to deal with any tenants whatsoever. And this is a, a, a big thing for tenants. So you do the dirty work? That's correct. We, do the, we deal with tenants. We uh, deal with cleaning, with small maintenance. Uh, basically, they just sit down, relax, uh, have their holidays and whatever time with families, do whatever they want. And we pay guaranteed rent uh, at the, at the uh, certain time. So you ensure that really being a landlord isn't a job, doesn't need to be work. It can just be a holiday. I think a property investor like me is a perfect solution for landlords. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. There is nothing more beautiful than forcing someone out of their home because they can't afford the rent and then delivering an increased rent from a different bunch of people to a landlord who can be on permanent holiday. Um, the landlord's conference took place at a time when everyone's costs are going up with no one being hit harder than the one in five households in the UK who rent privately. So it's no surprise that a tenant's protest took place outside the venue. They have issues with an increase in evictions, which have nearly doubled in the last year, and rising rents, which are being hiked much faster than wages. In London, the average rent is now just over £2,000 a month. The landlords, though, didn't like being called out. 
You haven't got a job. Your job is... I have a job. I, Madam, with the greatest of respect, I have a job. And my job is being responsible for all my tenants. And when they, when they email me saying the boiler isn't working or the windows aren't opening or there's mold, I have to respond straight away. Because if I don't, right, they're going to go next door where the landlord will have a property where it will have no mould or a boiler working. That's called capitalism. That's called competition. That works. After that confrontation, Rivka caught up with the landlord. Do you think that they've got the wrong end of the stick? Like children to parents, they run, mummy, daddy, government, take care of me. Take care of me, government. Government's the answer. Government is not the answer. But I suppose that they're not just saying that government's the answer, they're saying that the you know, the private landlords should themselves have compassion and shouldn't just gouge renters for everything that they're worth in the cost of well, living I, crisis. I would personally argue that a lot, vast majority of landlords have great compassion. But Have you increased your rents during the cost of living crisis? Of course, of course, because we're passing on our costs in turns. But is that compassionate? Well, if we don't pass on our rents, if we don't pass on inflation, tax hikes, interest rates hikes, then the property will be repossessed and then no one will have a home. So we have no choice but to pass on some, not all, but some of the costs, right? Do you mind me asking how many properties are in your portfolio? In London, specifically? All together. About 25. And so are you not able to absorb any kind of contraction of your margins during, it's, you know, it's an asset, it's value increases and decreases. You might have, no one's made a bad bet, let's say, but you might have misread the forecast or just not predicted that we were going to have a housing crisis or a war in Ukraine um, or a cost of living crisis, I should say. Um, but, you know, surely landlords with uh, foresight should be able to weather that storm and sort of absorb some of those costs in the knowledge that their asset will increase in value in, in the future. With regards to the cost of living, um, yeah, I mean, landlords, landlords, look, um, they're not stupid. They're not going to evict tenants on a whim. They want... But like 300,000 tenants have been evicted on the whim of landlords in the cost of living crisis. Yeah, and why is that? Because government, again, are saying they're going to get rid of Section 21 they're imposing all these extra taxes. I mean, that, most landlords, let's be frank, pardon my language, most small landlords haven't got a pot to piss in. I mean, this whole charade here is a joke because most landlords, most small landlords are poor, desperately poor. But, but also a large proportion of landlords, possibly even half of landlords, don't even aren't even mortgaged, like don't even have don't even have loans. We spoke to a landlord today who said, I don't need to increase the rents. I don't have any loans, but I'm doing it because the market's going that way. Well, good luck to him. But I mean, really? what, what, what I would what I would say, what I would say seriously in earnest is that is that most small landlords with one, two, three units heavily mortgaged to the hilt, they are desperate to make it work, they want good paying tenants and they want to keep them. And they would have no desire to raise rents and risk losing those tenants if they weren't forced to do so. All we want to do as landlords is build homes and provide sustainable homes for tenants, right? So they have good quality homes, long-term homes to live in. But government fucked, pardon my You're name. allowed to swear. They, they, they fuck, fuck it up nonstop. They always do it. And the less government involvement we have, the better. That's why all these people are so deluded here. They are directing it here at the private sector when they should be directing it at government. We should be pushing for 
less regulation, less taxation, not more. All we as landlords want to do is build more homes. Aaron, have you ever met a landlord that's built a house? I've met a few, actually. I've got one in mind, maybe. They sort of build places and manage them. This guy's completely crazy, Michael. If you're going to earn that much money, at least get a decent haircut. My goodness. <laughs> and dress properly. You know, I like wearing an England football shirt. I think if I was that rich as he claims to be, I'd probably be walking around in a couple of thousand pound suit. Uh, obviously, that would never happen, Michael. I would be... I would give those houses over. There would be social housing. There would be housing co-ops. You'd be living in the first one. Don't worry about it. But this, this whole thing is ridiculous. On the one hand, he's saying, landlords want more houses. We want to build more houses. They should be aiming their anger at government. And then you've got somebody before him saying, quite rightly so, well, actually, the reason why we can ask what we like is because there's a complete undersupply of housing. So fuck the tenants. We can ask for more rent because there's not many places they can go to. That's the reality. Landlords benefit from undersupply when it comes to housing. The idea that, oh, I just want the, I want these people to complain towards government. You know, we have the same interest. No, you don't. You have a very strong interest in cheap, easy credit, undersupply of housing stock. That's where you have a really strong interest in these, these two things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's rather, it's rather fatuous. There's a few other points as well I had here, Michael. This, this remarkable moment where this woman goes, oh, look, I would never do something so morally objectionable as you know, throwing somebody out during the housing crisis. Awful, disgusting behavior. I pay somebody else to do that, of course. My goodness. And then you have the same people saying, well, it's a job. It's a, don't tell me to get a job as a landlord. Uh, what I have is a job. The same people are saying, I don't have to do anything because, of course, the, you know, the, the uh, property management company does it all for me. Well, it's not a job then, is it? You are sitting on your ass. And the other guy with the, the accent, I think, from maybe the Northeast, he's saying, well, no, I have to ask for property, um, for rent rises because I don't have a job anymore. You know, I've retired early. You don't, have some, you don't have some God-given right to retire at 45. This is not normal, you know? Let's say you live to 95. Let's say you live to 90. You don't have some God-given right to subsist and have a really high quality of life without working for 50 years. There's no society in the history of humanity so far which has been based like that. Maybe when we get to fully automated luxury communism, Michael, uh, but right now it's a rather strange mindset to have. And, and I think he probably does understand that quite explicitly his high quality standard of living, him not having to work, is premised off a feudal relationship to his tenants. And he extracts and captures all the value of their work because they add value to the real economy and that allows him to not work. As John Maynard Keynes said a century ago, it's time to euthanize the rentier. Which isn't a statement about any of those people in particular, uh, but the, the class of landlords. So all existing landlords would still exist, they just wouldn't be landlords anymore. We're euthanizing the job, not the people. Just a clarification there. If you want to watch more of that video from Rivka Brown, you can do so here on our channel. And the link to that is in the description below. She is very, very good at vox popping. Uh, I was very impressed by all of those clips. Um, and the full video is, is fantastic too. We're going to go straight on to our next story. Labour has gone to war on hope. Now, it might seem like an odd strategy, but they've certainly got a lot of message discipline. Um, this was Wes Streeting in The Guardian on Sunday, or The Observer, I suppose. False hope is worse than no hope. Labour won't make promises it can't keep. Now, I didn't realise those were the only two options. So we could either have false hope or no hope. What about hope? that might be fulfilled. That would be nice. Uh, not what the Labour are offering. Um, in the piece he writes this, the only thing worse than no hope is false hope. 
It will disappoint some of our friends that we are not pledging support for every cause they believe in, but it would be so much more damaging to make promises now and then break them after the election. Ask the Lib Dems what far-fetched promises on tuition fees did for them. Of course, we have a more recent example of someone who made a bunch of pledges they didn't keep. Streeting's current boss. Just think of the Lib Dems. What happened when they broke their promise on tuition fees? Yep. Starmer, you know, the guy you see every day, he also broke a, a promise on tuition fees much more recently um, than the Lib Dems did. Yet while Starmer may be more openly keen on deception than Wes, Wes wants to be brutally honest, you should have no hope, not false hope, um, they do agree on the hope question, right? So Starmer um, doesn't seem to want people to have hope, at least if the Sunday Times are to be believed. They reported this. Ed Miliband apparently gave an animated PowerPoint presentation to the Shadow Cabinet on his revolutionary energy policies, speaking excitedly of the hope and change he believed they would bring. His reception from Sir Keir Starmer, however, was decidedly lukewarm. Starmer thanked him for his presentation, but said he wasn't interested in hope and change. He was more interested in creating sustainable new jobs to replace jobs in old sectors that were being lost, said a source. He then said he was not interested in tree huggers before adding to everyone's surprise. In fact, I hate tree huggers. The article goes on to say this. Those close to the leader believe it is the economic challenge, not climate change, the party needs to focus on. They see Miliband as an eco-warrior who is more interested in the green agenda than the party's central priority of jobs, bills and energy security. A shadow cabinet minister said, quote, Keir is always trying to anchor the party. Ed will always try to toe the line by saying that the party's priorities are jobs, bills, energy security and climate change in that order. He can't help himself. He is a hopey changey kind of person and we don't like hope or change in the current Labour Party. They also write this sort of in terms of who, who this seems to be down to. Morgan McSweeney, Labour's election chief, is frustrated by those in the party pushing the green policies. A source close to him, which essentially tends to mean that they've endorsed the comment themselves, said, quote, he sees everything through the prism of electoral success. He sees everything else as a distraction. He wants to throw the excess baggage off the boat and just concentrate on the economy. Of course, lots of this could just be dismissed as a debate about pre-election messaging. Do we want our message to be about the economy or do we want our message to be about climate change? But there was another briefing, I mean, a separate Sunday Times story that was more worrying when it comes to the policy question. So it's this, Labour will copy Tory tax and spending plans if elected. So the article quotes a shadow cabinet member saying shadow chancellor Rachel Reeves won't be making any major tax pledges and that Starmer has no intention of raising taxes on high earners. And that claim about sticking to Tory spending plans as well as their tax plans is even more striking, I think. Now, it led Laura Koonsberg to ask Rachel Reeves if Labour were just offering austerity Mark II. The last time we had a government um, that said fiscal rules, spending limits were at the top of the list, the way they dealt with that was to introduce austerity. And by your analysis, you've written, austerity starved the economy of the investments it needs to grow. Austerity failed. But listening to you today, if spending limits, those fiscal rules at the top of your list, by your logic, you might make the same mistake again. No, that, that this is nothing like um, what the Conservatives uh, did. It's why, for example, the um, borrowing to invest is different from borrowing to pay for day-to-day -day, uh, spending. Investing in assets that can grow our economy it is essential if we want to break out of this doom loop of low growth, high taxes. But you've just and said you'll only do that uh, if you can afford to. Well, and, yeah. what, and, and isn't it the case... 
And you're very proud, I think, of being disciplined on this. But isn't it the case that that discipline means going into the next election, it's very likely that Labour and the Conservatives will basically be following the same kind of tram lines on spending? I don't accept that at all. If you look, for example, what we've said around taxation of non-DOMs, I believe if you make your home in Britain, you should pay your taxes here. You know that's a marginal issue. It's important to some people, but you know that's a small amount of cash in the overall thing. I don't think... 3.5 billion pounds a year is marginal. And we've said that we would use that money to invest in one of the biggest ever workforce expansions in the NHS. You had Steve Barclay on this program last week. He said that he had an NHS workforce plan, but he had no idea how it was going to be funded. Labour do, we would fund it through that non-DOM tax status uh, being um, revoked. That is a tax loophole that has existed for 200 years. Labour would close it to invest in our public services. That's the difference between Labour and Conservatives. I explain how our sums add up and I close loopholes if they don't work for working people and use them for the priorities that we see, the priorities for this country. And just yes or no, are you disputing then a suggestion, a report in the Sunday Times this morning that basically your spending plans are on the same track as Conservatives? You dispute that? Well, they're not on the same track. I've just given you one example, but there are others as well. But I am absolutely committed to fiscal discipline and I have no desire to see the tax burden on working people increase. In fact, I would like the tax burden on working people to be lower, but it all has to be built on that rock of economic and fiscal stability, because if you put that at peril, then you see what's happened in our economy these last few months with sky-high interest rates and inflation that is very difficult to get under control. So the argument there, Labour will be different from the Tories because they will borrow to invest. Now, that makes sense. It's coherent. However, their self-imposed fiscal rules mean that the size of such an investment is also in doubt. So if you say we're going to borrow to invest, that's fine. But they've got this fiscal rule, which is that debt has to also be falling. And that includes um, borrowing to invest. This is Reeves on The Royal Coonsberg Show again. Last time you came on this programme, you said that you'd be spending £28 billion a year on green projects. You said it was crucial and you said it needed urgency. Now, since you came on last, that has now been delayed. Are you 100% committed to reaching that level of spending, £28 billion a year, by the end of the first parliament, if you win the election? I can't overstate the damage the Conservatives have done to the economy, but I'm not going to apologise for making sure that our sums add up. And since I first announced Labour's green prosperity plans, interest rates have gone up 13 times. Inflation's now at 8.7%, seems to be stuck there, been there for the last two months. And I've always been clear that all our policies, including investing in the industries of the future and boosting our energy security, are subject to our fiscal rules, which means paying for day-to-day spending through tax receipts and getting debt down as a share So that of explains economy. the delay. But my question is, are you committed to spending that £28 billion by the end of your first parliament if you win the election? We're confident that we can get there, but all of our but plans are you committed will always to it? be... Yeah, we're committed to it, but it's our subject to our fiscal rules. And that's really, really important to say that. And those are your limits on spending, that jargon. <laughs> yes. And what I say is that you pay for day-to-day spending through tax receipts and you get debt down as a share of the economy. You know, David Gork made a really good point on the panel earlier. You know, debt has tripled under the Conservatives. Debt is now the same size as our whole economy. We've got to get a grip of that. And all of our plans will be consistent with those fiscal rules. And the- So Aaron, two points here. I suppose one, this war on hope. So there's lots of people in the Labour Party that want you to know don't don't have hope, don't be hopeful. We're not interested in hope. 
Um, and then I suppose the question of, of the fiscal rules and the, and the one that really matters here, I think. So saying you're not going to borrow for day-to-day spending is fine. You're going to borrow for to invest. I mean, that makes sense. But then the one that seems like it's going to cause a real problem is that they need debt to be falling as a proportion of GDP. Now, the only way you can make that happen is if we have much faster growth than we're currently having now. And to me, there's a sort of chicken-egg problem. Because for me, I would say, you know, to bring about the growth, what you need to do, you need to borrow to invest. But they're saying we're not going to borrow to invest until we have growth. And then the hope, I suppose, is that a little bit of planning reform and a couple of other things that don't cost any money, that will bring the growth. And then by the end of parliament, they'll be able to borrow some money to invest. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? It's a hope and a prayer. It's a hope and a prayer. You know, these are the same people that talk about deglobalization and decoupling from um, China in terms of global supply chains. If you think inflation is bad right now, wait till what inflation would be like if we tried to decouple from China, if we weren't importing consumer durables and electronics from East and Southeast Asia. (laughs) Inflation will be much higher. So it's a very strange way to talk. On the one hand, deglobalization, we've already extricated ourselves from one of the world's leading sources of hydrocarbons, although it impacted us less than the rest of Europe, really. We're now about to do the same with the, the world's leading industrial manufacturer. It's it's deeply concerning, Michael. The £28 billion commitment has gone. It doesn't exist. If there is not growth of circa 2%, 2% a year, it's not happening. In other words, it's not happening. You know, you might get a bonanza year, you know, a high growth year because we've had so many poor years. Let's say best case scenario, Labour win the election. There's no massive food shortages, no energy shortages, sweet spot of good weather, but not bad weather, no geopolitical problems. Russia, Ukraine is resolved quite quickly. Things don't inflame with China. Nothing happens with Tehran. Yeah, for one year, you might get 2-3% GDP growth. Yeah, one year. But we, we are now in a terminally low period of, of economic growth. And that's broadly the case for most of the West. It's not, not the case in the United States because it's enormous. It's a continent. It's a massive exporter of food, has a huge technology sector, and it's a massive, a massive exporter of energy. But for France, Italy, for Germany... For the countries who are kind of like us, they have not seen the kinds of growth that I think Labour are now almost expecting for when they when they come to power. So I think it is deeply um, concerning, Michael. And quickly on that point of uh, Keir Starmer saying he hates tree huggers, I have a hypothesis as to why, Michael. Would you like to hear it? Yes, I yes I would. You'd like to hear my hear my hypothesis. Well, think about it. He doesn't like to hug trees because he has a pollen allergy which would explain the fact that his nostrils are constantly blocked and he he sounds like he needs beckonets. So look, if I was in his boots, I would hate trees too. (laughs) I would hate all kinds of nature. But as as it is, actually, I'm I'm a bit lucky. I outgrew my pollen allergy as a kid. And I I love uh, British nature, Michael. I love to go out to the forests and to the woods and to the beach and to the coasts and rivers. Keir, get out of your London SUV. I know it's a hybrid, but it's still an SUV. And go to the great outdoors, you might change your mind. I love a parsimonious explanation, and I think that that counts as one. Rachel Reeves is also the subject of a long profile in The Guardian. The interview by Simon Hatterston touched on the case of North Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll, who was barred from standing as mayor of the North East because he shared a platform with Ken Loach. And this is how journalist Simon Hattinson um, describes the conversation. 
I tell her I am Jewish and that I agree with a zero-tolerance approach to anti-Semitism, but the party is so gung-ho that it is now labeling people anti-Semitic who simply aren't, and there is a danger of destroying lives in the process. Well, look, I'm not on the bodies that make those decisions, so I don't know the details of that case. But it is so important that we are seen to, and we do, tackle anti-Semitism. Ken Loach, you might like his films, but his views, well, certainly, they are not ones I share. So that was the quote from Rachel Reeves. Simon Hattinson says, that doesn't make him anti-Semitic. And then Rachel Reeves says, you don't think Ken Loach is anti-Semitic? Okay, well, I think we might have to agree to differ. Simon Hattinson asks, why does she think he is anti-Semitic? Rachel Reeves says, look, I'm not on the bodies that make those decisions, but I think it's right we have a zero-tolerance approach, she repeats. You can't make such an accusation without supporting it, I say. And Rachel Reeves says, well, look, I'm not on the body who makes these decisions. And she says, she repeats that letter again. Loach later tells me there was no due process in his expulsion. He was just told he was unfit to be a party member. Anti-Semitism wasn't mentioned. Uh, it's not very forensic, is it, Aaron? She's sort of saying, Ken Loach, he's anti-Semitic. Um, I'm not going to give you any evidence to back that up. No, she's meant to be this, you know, this uh, stellar economist, clever social scientist, so clever. All she does is play chess. You know, some people have to pull her away from playing chess. They go, Rachel, you're the shadow chancellor. Don't forget that. Stop playing chess all the time, please. You've got an interview with Simon Hattonston. Don't worry, I'm four moves away from checkmate. She's this clever forensic woman. And yet when somebody says, well, look, surely it's quite a bad thing to be a racist. If you're going to call somebody a racist, there clearly has to be at least a threshold where you can explain why they're a racist. Nope, too much. And I think that says something about both Rachel Reeves, the political culture inside the Labour Party, particularly in relation to the Labour establishment, but also the media. She's probably never been asked that question, ever. X persons are racist. Why? Oh, God. Oh, God. I don't know. Uh, can we talk about chess, please? Can we talk about how uh, I was a school chess champion? Did you know I'm good at chess? So I think it's a real indictment on the media that those aren't the kinds of questions that are... It's a basic question, right? If you, if you call somebody a racist and somebody else says, well... You know, that's, that's really to their detriment. That's going to tarnish them as they, as they go forward. Um, you are a, a very senior person in public life. Could you, would you care to explain why you think that? And they can't. I mean, my God, what does that tell you about the caliber and the lack of morals and scruples and principle when it comes to the kinds of people in our political class? It tells a hell of a lot. But I, I think it's the kinds of people you don't really meet in everyday life. That is very unusual behavior, Michael. The people watching this, listening as a podcast later on, how many people do you meet on a day-to-day -day basis who would call somebody out there, a racist, and then not be able to explain why. That's very, very unusual. But for our politicians, and most of the media, it's the norm. Final story. A new row has blown up about civility in politics. We've been due one for a while. I've been waiting patiently. Um, this time, it's about throwing confetti at a wedding. To be precise, it was George Osborne's wedding. He was marrying his former aide, Fia Rogers, when an environmental protester threw orange confetti on the pair. Now, the orange confetti is, of course, in the style of Just Stop Oil, though the group have denied responsibility. One person who was at the wedding was former Shadow Chancellor Ed Balls, who happened to be hosting Monday's edition of Good Morning Britain with Susanna Reid. Owen Jones and Andrew Pearce joined them. I don't think any politician has caused so much ruin in this country than George Osborne. Hmm? The decimation of the welfare state, okay. which plunged huge numbers of people but, into poverty but, oh, and misery. in a democratic system, of course, we have the ability to vote on that, mm -hmm. don't we? To get rid of people, to, to kick people out if we disagree with them. Not to kind of have a personal persecution uh, complex get, against them, but again, to continually again, destroy 
them and their magic moments. So I don't. I just think that. But again, just people what, are human beings, aren't they? Just that one example I gave of a mum who lost her beloved daughter and then had to pay the bedroom but, tax because she had a spare it, bedroom. That is far, 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 far worse yes. than orange confetti on your wedding day. Yeah, and I know it's ridiculous that, woman, that to say the this. the woman protesting. No, but we don't know anything about the circumstances of this woman. We literally don't what, even know who she is. But what does that, what does that justify then? Well, if, if you're hinting at this for you, the suggestion that I would, like, no, I think just I'm, be careful, there's no innuendo implications where the, where here. Obviously, I oppose all forms of violence, so that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about orange mm -hmm. confetti. Mm -hmm. To be clear, we're talking about orange confetti. No one was attacked or assaulted. Some orange, bits of orange paper were, were thrown at someone on yeah. their wedding day. That's okay. what we're discussing. But as I've said, for me, it's about perspective. Would I throw orange confetti at George Osborne or anyone on their wedding day? No. But am I more outraged about the fact we are more angry in our politics and our media about stunts like this than we are about the mm. human consequences of what politicians do, then yeah, that's what I think. Andrew, I can't help what I think. Now, as you could probably guess from my introduction, I get a bit tired of these civility debates. I personally think civility is a good thing. Um, I, I tend to be polite to people even when I disagree with them very fundamentally. But I don't think it's the be-all and end-all of politics. I agree with Owen Jones that this is not very bad compared to many other things going on in the world. Um, dishonesty frustrates me more, though, and I think Ed Balls risked that in this next clip. Owen has been, been very deeply angered by things yeah. George Osborne's done. Yeah. And I've been deeply angered by things George Osborne's done. I was deeply angered by the depth of the, the police cuts. I hated the way in which he stigmatised people claiming tax credits and claimed that somehow people on tax credits were sitting behind the curtains, lazing around. Yeah, he whipped up hatred against people. some of the most vulnerable people in society. No, 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 but... but you don't need to tell me that because I know that. Yeah, but I, what I don't I like about it is, is I, I think have, the case of the point is you having a well, podcast been, with him now where it's all kind of buddy and, you know, we're best mates and all the rest of it because I think it, under, it undermines how serious what he did is. Well, you know, I, as an I, example, I, I, I a coalition... I what you say, but I think it's possible, Owen, to be civil to people and disagree. Right, right. Well, yeah, but I talk about civility. Yeah. You just mentioned an issue about civility there. Mm. And I, that's a really good point about the way George Osborne whipped up bigotry against people who didn't have a voice. Now, that is a perfectly coherent argument from Ed Balls. He disagreed intellectually with George Osborne, but he can separate his politics from his interpersonal relationships. I, I would add, going to someone's wedding is more than being civil, right? So, again, you could argue that you can be close friends with people who fundamentally disagree with you, but it, that is going beyond civility. That's a friendship. You can talk about whether or not friendships beyond the political divide are a good thing or, or a bad thing. That's all irrelevant, though, because the problem for me is... I'm not sure how much evidence Ed Balls has of really disagreeing with George Osborne. Now, this is from 2014, the year before an election when Balls was shadow chancellor. Balls binds Labour to austerity with promise of no extra borrowing. Shadow chancellor closes down Tory attack by ruling out option of borrowing for infrastructure projects. Now, the reason infrastructure projects is specified there is because Labour had already pledged they would not borrow for spending on day-to-day um, spending, so the day-to-day -day running of, of government taxes, benefits, etc. Right, so they were going to marginally raise taxes, but they weren't going to radically transform the country. We were still going to be in pretty much an austerity situation. What about the demonization of welfare recipients, though? Balls there seemed very clear that he was absolutely outraged by this. He thought this was just as disgusting as Owen Jones did. Well, on that front, this was a big splash made by Labour when Ed Balls was in charge of economic policy. Labour will be tougher than Tories on benefits, promises new welfare chief. And then you've got the subheading, Rachel Reeves vows to cut welfare bill and force long-term jobless to take up work offers or lose state 
support. Rachel Reeves was then Shadow Work and Pensions Secretary, so it's hard to imagine that statement wasn't run past Ed Balls. Of course, you don't need to tell me that Rachel Reeves is now in Ed Balls' old job as Shadow Chancellor. Aaron, what did you make of that debate? Just utterly stupid, Michael. I, I should... I should say that I was asked to go on that show um, and I said, I can't do it. It was too late. They, they called at like half six in the evening yesterday and, you know, I don't live in London. I would have had to get a hotel and all that. So I, I, I said I couldn't do it. Put the phone down. And I thought, really? I've written a, a book about political economy and technological change. I'm writing a book about demographic aging. Navarro Media and all my colleagues cover so many interesting things. And you want me to talk about confetti? You want me to talk about confetti? I, I I don't know where this is not, not I'm not lampooning the producer or whatever. That's what you have to do. It's the it's the news cycle. It's the media cycle. I'm, I'm sure it did very well. But as a society, we need to ask ourselves: Is it really you know that important? And and the way I try and deal with these sorts of questions is Michael. I, I try and get myself into the head of my dad, who's a very you know taciturn old Iranian man, and I would be outraged. And I say, Dad, somebody threw confetti at a newly married couple, and he'd go, Okay. Isn't, isn't that what you normally do at weddings? No, but it was a stranger. Well, that's, that's, that's good of them, isn't it? No, but it was protest confetti. Well, how's it different to normal confetti? It isn't. It was just protest confetti. Well, how do you know it was protest confetti? Was the person screaming? No, no. I had no idea at all. I, I know it's protest confetti because it's orange. He would look at me like I'd had, you know, taken uh, several hundred grams of mushrooms, MDMA, pills, and cannabis. Okay. If I was, he said, what son, what the fuck are you talking about? You're talking about confetti, like it's a nuclear weapon. And, and the fact that people like, you know, um, Ed Balls and David Lammy, all these people just flipping out over it. And frankly, there are many cultures out there. If you tried to explain this to someone, it was awful. It was so uncivil. They, they wouldn't have the first idea what you were talking about. Confetti. Oh, it's bad. It's protest confetti. What's it? Nasty confetti. Can it hurt you? Does it say bad things when it lands on your, on your shoulder? Just utterly, utterly stupid and asinine. But this is the level of triviality that most of the political and media class like to operate at. And this is the downside with these kinds of stunts. So on the one hand, these kinds of, you know, pseudo events are very good because the media love them and it means you get to talk about your political agenda. Great. The downside is the media love them. And so they get to talk about this utterly trivial, asinine nonsense rather than the big issues. It's a very, very fine line and just, just really pathetic. And it speaks to the caliber of Ed Balls as a, as a person that he can't even admit he, he's George Osborne's friend. Just say it, man. You were invited to his wedding. Have some respect for George Osborne. I'm not his friend. I disagree. It's just civility. Oh, you're his friend. You're his friend. If somebody treats you like crap or says something in the future and they've been to your wedding, you say to them, you go, you were at my wedding. I thought we had a bond. That's a significant thing. But the day after, Ed Balls is pretending like, you know, they just follow each other on Twitter. It's pathetic. Own who you are. Own your politics. And own the fact that you enabled and backed austerity and, uh, and a set of policies which absolutely hammered the most vulnerable pe people in this country. But also, as importantly, set this country back 20, 30 years. So many problems we have today find their genesis in austerity, 2010, 2015. Labour did not oppose it, and they're doing the same thing now. So that, that, that point about how close one has to be to, invite, to, be, a wedding, to, to be invited to a wedding sorry, is interesting, because also there was Emily Maitlis, so the former uh, host of, of, of Newsnight, often thought to be quite combative of the government. John Sopel, uh, who was the US editor, 
Um, he, I think he worked in British politics for a while for the BBC. Now he's doing the news agents with um, Emily Maitlis. Um, and Yvette Cooper, of course, um, going with Ed Balls. And Nick Robinson, who is the main host on Radio 4's Today program. Um, I suppose it's, you know, they'll obviously come across each other a lot in professional life. Is it a problem that all of these top journalists are going to this top politician's wedding? Or is that, you know, is that completely normal? I'm being a spoil sport by finding it maybe somewhat concerning. Yes, it is a problem. It's a big problem. And these people saying, well, Thea Rogers, she was in the media beforehand. Fine in regards to Thea Rogers, arguably. But, you know, George Osborne and, and Ed Balls, I find the whole thing puzzling. Do they not have friends from outside politics? Do they not have school friends? Do they not have people, you know... Uh, Osborne's been out of politics now since, what, 2018? He's been out of politics five years. Can you not find new friends? And I have a sneaking suspicion, actually, Michael, that... Osborne quite liked that whole saga because he loves attention. He craves attention. People say, it was a private, it was a sacred event. Yeah, so sacred. He had his first wife and four children and he left her. Okay, so sacred. So park that. He doesn't believe in the sacred thing, okay? Fine, that's a personal thing. You, that's fine. That's good. It's good. I support the right to divorce. Park the sacred thing. Oh, no, it was a private affair. The press association were there, Michael. The camera we saw was the press association. But you're telling me it's a private affair. This holy ritual, private affair, give me a break. Get the press association there with the rolling cameras. He didn't even have, I just find this man so strange, Michael. At your own wedding, you don't have the guests throwing confetti because he wants to shop for the press association. Sorry. If you want to defend that and start saying about holy and rituals and privacy, shut up. <laughs> the, the guy wants media, media attention because he's yesterday's news. Somebody decided to throw some bloody orange confetti, some smiling older woman. People were saying to me, like Paul Embry on Twitter, he said, how would you like it if Patriotic Alternative came up to your wedding and did stuff? Paul, Patriotic Alternative want to deport me. It's not the same as wanting to build wind turbines and, and retrofit houses and, and have cleaner rivers, okay? Repatriation of brown and black people isn't the same thing, all right? Yeah, if some person on the right wants to throw confetti at me at my wedding from a cause not dissimilar to um, Extinction Rebellion or Just Stop Oil, would I, I, I'd probably be mildly irritated for 30 seconds and then get pissed. He ruined his wedding. Shut up. Did he say that? Have they said that? Of course it didn't ruin their wedding. It's ridiculous. If it ruined the wedding, that says more about the relationship than it does about the confetti thrower, probably. This really is in the realms of speculation, though. Aaron... Bastani, we shall stop speculating and draw a close to tonight's show. It's been a pleasure being joined by you. It's been my pleasure, Michael. I hope Ash gets better soon, and I hope I was something of a suitable replacement on your Monday... No, I was going to say Tisky. Monday Navarra Live extravaganzas. I have to say, you've been very, very entertaining this evening, Aaron. So, uh, yeah, five stars from me. Um, thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. We'll leave you to go and speculate um, on your own. Uh, as I say, again, don't tweet your speculations. Talk among friends. Come back tomorrow night for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.